0: On a personal note, it, it's really great to serve as an elder here at Redeemer on your session. And I, I just want to say, take a moment and say from this setting, thank you for being a joy to serve. Uh, thank you for being a joy to lead. I don't, I've never served on another session anywhere else on the planet before. and So I don't know, maybe this, maybe Redeemer is an anomaly in that y'all are really easy and really great and really a lot of fun uh, to serve and to lead and to work alongside uh, or maybe you're just taking pity on us as a session because we all look like we're about 25 years old and barely out of school, and so we can't—we don't even have a clue, and so you just go easy on us. Whatever it is, uh, thank you for being a joy to serve. And so uh, just on a personal note, thank you for that. On another personal note, I don't often get to say thank you for being a church that supports us Uh, since Morgan and I are here. uh, You know that we're in ministry and uh, we we work with internationals, we work with uh, students in the campuses around here. And so we don't often get to say just a personal thank you because we're here all the time as not as visiting missionaries. Thank you for supporting us as well. So two thank yous and now strange transition into what we're going to talk about this morning. So, the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago had a great piece about CEOs and corporate jet abuses. So, to develop their report, they analyzed the data of private aircraft flights to a list of 300 different locales that were more likely, in their opinion, to be leisure destinations than business destinations. So, they excluded cities, major cities like New York and Paris and London and Miami, and they included places like Palm Beach, and Aspen, and the Bahamas. So, sorry, Craig and Kathy, the Bahamas are not actual business uh, destinations according to this report. So, one of their more uh, interesting discoveries uh, was that of Mr. Joseph Tucci. He's the CEO of this large computer storage company called EMC Corporation. And the board of EMC Corporation had entrusted Mr. Tucci and the other C-suite executives with a fleet of five corporate jets that they said they could, they could use for business travel around the world. And in addition, CEO Joseph Tucci was entrusted with what they deemed limited personal use of these, uh, of these aircraft, these corporate aircraft. So as the Wall Street Journal analyzed the data uh, for these flights of EMC's planes, they, they found that these personal trips may not have been quite so limited in their personal use. So over the course of four years, EMC jets, they found, landed at a total of, get this, 393 different resort or different times at resort locations where Mr. Tucci just so happens to have vacation homes. So he has vacation homes in Cape Cod, the Jersey Shore, and the Florida Keys. And one of these jets in particular spent 46% of its flight time going to or from these other vacation spots over these four years that they analyzed. Fleet-wide, EMC Corporation jets spent 31% of their time going to or from resort destinations. So think about that number, 393, for a minute. And think about how many times you would have to fly in four years to hit that. Works out to about 98 flights a year over a four-year period to and from Mr. Tucci's vacation destinations. It's nearly two a week. Or, to put it another way, there's, really, there's only 52 weekends out of a year. So how, how many times was he actually going to his vacation homes? So the journal's estimate of the cost of EMC's flights to or from these airports near the CEO's homes... 3.1 million dollars. So probably not what the EMC board or the EMC shareholders had in mind when they entrusted Mr. Tucci with a fleet of corporate jets. So it's easy for us to criticize Mr. Tucci, especially since most of us will never have the opportunity to misuse resources like corporate jets. But really, if we think about it, we're all just like Mr. Tucci, in that we have been we are tempted to use what's been entrusted to us in ways other than God intended. But God has entrusted each one of us with varying degrees of kingdom resources, be they spiritual gifts, knowledge, natural abilities, finances, influence, expertise. And in light of Jesus' return, God intends for us to be good and faithful stewards of those resources. So let's look together at a parable about just that in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, which I believe is on page 702 of your pew bibles in front of you so when you found your place please stand with me and let's read together from god's word matthew 25 beginning in verse 14 for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another two to another one to each according to his ability then he went away Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so I pray for your Holy Spirit to be the teacher and the illuminator of your word this morning. Help us to consider all your precepts to be right and to turn aside from every worldly and false way. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So to begin back with this passage, let's get some big picture context of where this passage is at. So Matthew chapter 25 not surprisingly, follows Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's talking about the kingdom and his return and how the kingdom will come. And so there's going to be some signs toward this end, Jesus says, like in verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But ultimately, Jesus says in verse 36, no one knows the hour or the day. Therefore, Stay awake. Be ready. And so this concept leads us to the the first parable in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And the main idea there is that Jesus will return, just like he said. No one knows the hour or the day. And so in light of that, be wise and be watchful. So that's the parable of the ten virgins. And then we get to our parable that we just read. And the main idea there is be good and be faithful. So with that context in mind of Matthew chapter 24, let's look again at the first parable, at the parable before us, and I'm going to walk through some of the details of the story as you follow along. So let's look first, like any good story, it has a good setting, it has some character development in verses 14 to 15. So it starts out like this. It, the kingdom of God, as we read in context, will be like a man going on a journey, so literally this means that the man is going abroad. So I take that to mean he's going on an international business trip. And he calls his servants, and he entrusts them with his property. And that property is in the form of a talent. And a talent was really just a unit of weight. It was the largest unit of weight available uh, at that time. And so because of this parable, that word talent has eventually become to, to mean what we think of it in its modern sense, which is skills and abilities, natural abilities that we have. So that's how we know it today. But here, in this parable, it simply means a weight. What we don't know is if this talent, if this, if this weight was of gold or of silver or of copper. And depending on the element that was used, gold, silver, or copper, would have led us to a different amount uh, that that weight was worth. So it doesn't really matter what it was worth. Um, it could have been up to 15 to 20 years of moderate wages, a single talent. So you're talking about a lot, no matter how you cut it. So each servant has been given, let's just say, a lot, a lot more, and a whole lot more. Different amounts, different servants to each according to his ability. Then the master goes away. So notice that there, there aren't any instructions given. He simply goes away on his international business trip. The instructions for the talent use, I believe, are implicit. Put the talents to work somehow. So in verses 16 to 23, then we see some more development, and we see a rising tension in this story. So follow along with this. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them. And traded simply means that he put them to work somehow. He invested them, he employed them, he worked with them somehow. Perhaps the servant went out and bought a field and raised some crops on his master's land. Or perhaps he hired a bunch of of new workers to work his master's land to increase the productivity of it, sell the produce at the market. Or maybe if they're in a a fishing town, maybe he bought a fleet of fishing uh, ships and leased them out to the area uh, fishing industry. Really, we don't know what he did, but whatever he did with the talents, he doubled his capital investment. So the exact same words are used for the second servant, you'll notice. He immediately went to work with his talents, and he, as a result of his work, doubled his capital as well. But, there's a big contrast here, but the servant who had received the one talent dug in the ground and hid his master's money. No possibility of loss here, but there's no possibility of gain either when your talent is in the ground. The talent was, in a word, safe. So after a long time, the master returns from his international business trip, and no doubt he's excited to see his servants again and see what they've done with the talents that he entrusted to them. So now I want you to notice the rhythm and the repetition that occurs in these next few verses, beginning in verse 20. It says, He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me, or literally, you placed into my hands five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. So you hear that that rhythm and that repetition five talents, five talents more, five talents, five talents more. And as he approaches the master, I think there's a degree of enthusiasm and excitement for the servant as he approaches his master and says, Look, here's what I've done with it. And the master responds, Well done, good and faithful servant. And he doesn't say brilliant or successful, he doesn't say innovative and productive. The servant may very well have been those things, but that is not what the master is celebrating right now. He doesn't even commend the quantity of the talents that are returned. Simply good and faithful. And so what he says next I think sounds very strange to some of us in a culture that uh, has comfort and leisure as as one of the highest uh, sources of satisfaction. He says, you've been faithful with a little, Therefore, I will set you over much. And that's the strange part for us in a comfort-driven culture, right? The reward for good and faithful work isn't vacation. It's the opportunity to do even more good and faithful work. And so the exact same exchange unfolds for the second servant who was given the two talents. He receives the exact same praise, the exact same celebration, and the exact same joy in the giving and receiving of his talents from the master. So now, we get to arrive at the moment of what I would consider highest tension in this story. Just like any, any story, there's, there's a moment of high tension that we have to discover. So, really the question is, what will happen to the third servant who went and hid his master's talent? What will the master do? So, notice how this servant comes forward compared to the other two servants who came forward with the master. They came forward bringing, this guy comes forward babbling. And just like the proverb says, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. And so what does he say? He says, Master, I knew, therefore I was afraid. I knew, therefore I was afraid. Namely, he says, I believed something about you, and therefore I acted out what I believed about you. And that is that you are a hard man to please. And that made me afraid of you which led me to bury your talent in the ground rather than to put it to work in the way that you intended. So here, you can have it back. Far from accepting the slothful servant's explanation for these things, the master responds in verse 26, you wicked and slothful servant. You say you knew these things about me? Even if that were true, the easiest possible way for you to make a profit with my talents would have been to change the talents into the local currency and go down to the central bank of Jerusalem and deposit them in a low interest bearing savings account. Therefore, since you clearly have no interest whatsoever in putting my talent to work, give it to the one who does. So the parable ends with what I would consider a difficult doctrine. It says, cast the worthless servant into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so at first glance, this might seem like a bit of an overreaction on the master's part. The the servant wasn't wasn't a murderer. He didn't commit a particularly heinous crime. All he really did was refuse to use a portion of the master's resources in the way that the master intended. And so, is the outer darkness some kind of suburb of hell? Is he really worthless? Is he really wicked and slothful? What's the big deal? Well, I don't have quick and easy answers to any of those questions. But I will ask you to keep in mind our original context of this parable. So Jesus is talking with his disciples, right? He's talking with them alone. He's not out preaching to the crowds right now. And so he's telling his disciples that in light of his return, of which nobody knows the hour or the day, not even Jesus himself... In light of that return, be faithful with the kingdom resources that have been entrusted to you. And since Jesus is talking with his disciples in this parable, I think what he intends for us to understand is that the good and faithful stewardship of entrusted resources is a vital element of discipleship for us here today. So here's the main idea. God has entrusted each and every one of us in this room here this morning with varying degrees of talents. And I'm going to start using that word in the, in the modern sense of the word, uh, the fuller sense of the word, abilities, skills, resources, and things like that. So he's entrusted us with varying degrees of talents. He's entrusted us with resources, like financial resources, physical resources. And he's entrusted us with spiritual knowledge and spiritual gifts. And his intention in putting those things literally into our hands is to say, grow the kingdom Put the resources to work. And so that's what it means to be a good and faithful steward of those resources. But, and this is the warning, and remember, Jesus is talking with his disciples as he gives this warning. There's another way, and it's a worthless way. Mr. Tucci did it when he used his company resources for his own purposes and own selfish gain. And the third servant did it when he buried his master's talent. And I think we are prone to do it in some of our own ways as well. So the question before us this morning is really this, and this is our, our application of what it means to be a good and faithful steward is how do we pursue good and faithful stewardship of talents, resources and spiritual gifts that God has entrusted to us? So that's our application, and I want us to consider three things for that. First, it's the nature of the gifts. Next, the nurture of these gifts, and finally, the need for our gifts. So let's think about first the nature of these gifts. As we've already seen in the parable, the master entrusts his servants with his resources, each according to their abilities. And in the same way, God entrusts his servants, that's us, with his talents, his resources, his spiritual gifts, as he sees fit. So turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Beginning in verse, 12, verse 1, we'll see another dynamic of this giving of the resources. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, so that's to the right of Matthew in your Bibles. Beginning in verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, there are varieties of activities but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit wisdom, to another knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. And then jump down into verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you can hear in 1 Corinthians 12 there that Paul is going to great lengths to get us to see that these gifts are given and empowered by the same Holy Spirit, and that he does that freely as he wills. So knowing this, knowing that that's how we receive from the Lord, prevents our church from what I would call, from becoming what I would call a talent show which is where Sunday morning is about us showing off our talents to one another, either coming in here and bragging about what's been given to us or wishing that we'd been given a different talent and comparing ourselves to others. When either of those two things are happening, bragging or comparing, I think it's a good sign that it's become more about us and what we're doing with our talents than about the master and his entrusting of our talents. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why the master in the parable had such a harsh thing to say to the third servant in calling him wicked and slothful. The third servant wasn't given the exact same opportunity to shine and therefore began to think of his master as a hard and an unfair man who had gypped him. So out of spite, he goes out and he buries his talent in the ground and instead indulges his own evil and lazy interests. But for us, Knowing the nature of these gifts, that they're given and empowered by the same Spirit, that allows us to focus on being faithful and trusting his purposes for entrusting them to us as he wills. So that's the nature of the gifts. Next, let's think about the nurture of these gifts. How do we bring them along? How do we nurture them into fruition? So the first two servants in the parable took their talents and what did they do? They went out and they put them to work traded with them. What does that look like, though, for us? What does it look like to trade or to put our work, put our talents to work? Well, I think putting our talents to work is a lot like building a campfire. I don't do a lot of camping, but I know some of you have, and I've, I've built a few campfires in my day. So I know that it takes a lot of effort at first as you gather the resources, you gather the kindling so that you can start uh, this fire. So you gather the twigs, you arrange the structure. And then eventually you work to get the spark to catch. And once you get it going, a campfire is really easy to maintain. And it's a lot of fun to be around. And it's a blessing to everybody who's around it. Well, in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul uses a similar image to describe the gifts of God. And he tells Timothy in that that verse, 2 Timothy 1.6, Fan into flame the gift of God. For God gave us not a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. And I think that is a great picture. Obviously, it's a great picture. It's in the Bible. But that's a great picture of what it looks like to nurture the spiritual gifts that we've been given. Fan them into flame. So what that means, in my mind, is fan them into flame by starting something small at first. Gather those, those twigs. Gather those resources of spiritual gifts, talents, abilities together. Put them into a structure and then try to get that fire to start. So maybe what that looks like, maybe, maybe let's say that, that you feel like you have been gifted in teaching or leading or serving uh, in some capacity. And so in order to fan into flame those gifts, what you do is you speak up once or twice in Christian education. You have a, you have a great insight and you want to share it with others. So you speak up or you ask somebody if you can help or you step out uh, into a situation that's disorderly and chaotic and you put your leadership uh, to the test. And because God gave you not a spirit of fear but a power and love, you're emboldened to do those things and to try those things. And if you enjoy it and if others seem blessed by it, I think that's a good sign that you should fan into flame that gift even more. So another key to nurturing these gifts is to do so in the context of a community. What might have been different for the third servant if he had asked the other two servants for some help putting his talent to work? I think a lot of it would have been different. Your community group right here at Redeemer, and you're all in community groups, right? Right? Your community group is the perfect context for fanning into flame and for nurturing your gifts and talents and resources. So community groups, if you're a community group leader or your community group host or you're a community group participant, or you're not in a community group, get in a community group. Help each other fan into flame the gifts of God. Help each other nurture these gifts as you see them in one another's lives. Encourage one another toward the use of these gifts and the application of them. And help each other be faithful stewards. So finally this morning, let's consider the need for these gifts. And again, I want you to keep in mind the context of this parable Matthew 24 and really the rest of the Bible. But in Matthew chapter 24, remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, he will return, no one knows the hour or the day, but before he does, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, just a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples again, go and make disciples of all nations. So, good and faithful stewardship in this parable of what God has given to us is in the grander context of a global need for the proclamation of the kingdom and the making of disciples. And that doesn't mean we all go into vocational ministry. It doesn't mean we quit our day jobs. It doesn't mean that we ignore our responsibilities, and I think you all know that. But it is saying that faithfulness means kingdom-building faithfulness. Faithfulness means kingdom-building faithfulness, and we can easily spend our lives on a lot of things, even shiny, veneer, Christian, good-looking things, but church, be careful because the warning to the third servant, he was not condemned for doing evil things. He was condemned for doing non-kingdom-building, lazy things with the talents that he'd been given. So there's a need, and it is a global need. And I believe that with the resources, the talents, the skills, the abilities, the influence, and the expertise that are right here, God-given and entrusted to us right here this morning at Redeemer, I believe and am fully convinced that we could make new disciples, that we could welcome internationals into our homes, we could welcome college students into our homes, we could help families raise their children We could launch new community groups. We could plant a new church right here in Charleston. And we could send new missionaries like the Criders and others into the mission field among unreached peoples. And all that could happen in the next two or three years if we really put our resources and our talents to work. Wouldn't that be incredible? And more incredible than that, wouldn't it be incredible that when the master returns, we could look at him and we could say, Look, you entrusted us, you placed into our hands these thousand talents right here this morning. And now we have made a thousand talents more for you among the nations. And I I am convinced again that we would hear him say as a result, Well done, good and faithful servants. You, Redeemer, have been faithful with a little. I will entrust you with much enter into the joy of your master. Wouldn't that be great to hear? I would love to hear that. I hope you would love to hear that. And I'd love to marshal us toward that end. And so, to to conclude, Jesus will return. Let's be faithful stewards of all that God has entrusted us, all that he's given us here at Redeemer and around the world. So let's pray. Father, thank you for entrusting us. What a privilege it is to serve and to lead and to teach and to raise our children and lead our community groups. Father, thank you for entrusting us with the abilities and the talents and resources that you've given us by your Spirit, and you've empowered us by your Spirit to put those things to work. Thank you. I do pray for our church, Father. Make us good and faithful stewards of your resources that you've entrusted to us. And I pray for a multiplication of talents around the world. Pray that we would put those to work in a way that glorifies you and multiplies your talents in people's lives, in the lives of missionaries, and the lives of lost people and unreached people, that we would make new disciples around the world. Thank you for your kingdom and our ability to work and find joy in the work in it.